0: Welcome to Dissenting Opinions, a podcast by the Constitutional Law Institute at the University of Chicago Law School. I'm your host, William Bode, and each episode I discuss with top legal minds a Supreme Court case they believe is misunderstood.
1: Number 85, uh, associating, Association of Data Processing Service Organizations against uh, CAMP.
0: here today with one of my favorite law professors and, frankly, idols, Caleb Nelson at the University of Virginia. So welcome, Caleb.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Will, and honored to be on your podcast.
0: Well, thanks. So the usual way we go through this is to sort of first talk, just talk about the case and talk about what the conventional wisdom or understanding of the case is, and then talk about what's wrong with it and what that might mean and and so on. So I think the case that I'd love to talk with you about is one that many of our readers may not know, and is not a conventional constitutional law case. It's an administrative law case. And I always think of it as, as being named ADAPSO, but I think its real name is the Association of Data Processing Service Organizations versus CAMP. What is this case about?
1: Yeah, so that's a case that the Supreme Court decided in 1970. It articulated a new test for what the court called standing to bring suit in federal court, to challenge actions by federal administrative agencies, like to seek relief against the enforcement of a regulation or an order that the agency has issued, but that the plaintiff thinks violates some statutory or constitutional limitation on the agency's power. Justice Douglas wrote the Supreme Court's opinion in ADAPSO, or Data Processing, and he indicated that a plaintiff has standing to challenge agency action if two pretty loose conditions are satisfied. First, the plaintiff needs to allege that the agency's action is causing the plaintiff to suffer an injury in fact, some kind of harm in the real world. Justice Douglas associated that requirement with Article 3 of the federal constitution Mm -hmm. and the minimum requirements for any private lawsuit to count as a case or controversy of the sort that a federal court can adjudicate. Mm -hmm. Second, Justice Douglas said that the interest that the plaintiff is trying to protect must at least arguably Be within what justice douglas called the zone of interests to be protected or regulated by the statute or constitutional provision that the agency allegedly is violating Mm -hmm. these days people assume that when justice douglas's opinion in data processing referred to standing he basically meant whether the plaintiff has a cause of action or a claim for relief if the agency you know is indeed behaving unlawfully as the plaintiff says is this particular plaintiff entitled to a remedy? Does this plaintiff have remedial rights? Specifically, data processing is taken to address the scope of a cause of action that's created by the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA. The idea is that if an agency does something that's reviewable under the APA, and if Congress hasn't precluded judicial review or spelled out some other way to obtain it, then anybody who satisfies data processing's test for standing can bring suit in federal court to challenge the legality of what the agency has done. And if the court agrees that the agency has exceeded its authority, then the court will grant relief to the plaintiff. On that way of thinking, Justice Douglas was using the word standing in data processing to identify the class of people who have a cause of action to obtain remedies against agencies or agency officials that are behaving illegally. Anybody who's being harmed, who has an injury in fact, and whose interests are even arguably within a relevant zone, has remedial rights. But in my view, that's probably a misreading of data processing. Admittedly, the opinion is imprecise, and it's hard to understand. Cass Sunstein has correctly called it, quote, a remarkably sloppy opinion. But the opinion specifically distinguished what it called standing from what it called the merits. And it seemed to see standing as just a preliminary screen. The standing question, as portrayed by Justice Douglas, was about whether the plaintiff is even in the ballpark of having a cause of action, whether the plaintiff actually had a cause of action, was part of the merits of the plaintiff's claim for relief, as cast by Justice Douglas, and in my view, that's why Justice Douglas's test for standing simply asked whether the plaintiff's interests were at least arguably within some relevant zone under the then existing doctrine the doctrine that existed you know in 1970 when the supreme court was deciding this case and i can say more about the then existing doctrine in a bit that question about whether the plaintiffs interests were arguably within some relevant zone that question was relevant to whether the plaintiffs might have a cause of action but it wasn't the last word about whether they actually did have a cause of action by taking data processing to be talking about that latter question whether they actually had a cause of action Subsequent courts have misread the opinion, in my view, with important consequences because the modern understanding of data processing dramatically expands the cause of action that the APA was intended to recognize and was previously understood to recognize. I don't think that's what data processing saw itself as doing, but that's what it has been understood to do.
0: So on this, yeah, so in the conventional wisdom, sort of post-data processing the APA itself is basically a a super broad cause of action, kind of analogous to, I guess, Section 1983 in constitutional lawsuits against states, right? It just mostly pretermits the cause of action question. We just move on to, you know, unless you're some very strange plaintiff, did something illegal happen? That's the conventional yeah. view?
1: Yeah, so the APA might well, it, it might be said to create a cause of action. It's just that, in my view, if the APA was originally meant and and understood to create a much narrower cause of action than data processing is understood to have interpreted the APA to create. Right so kind of the conventional pre-data processing understanding of the APA was that it just basically reflected existing law, existing doctrine as it had stood in 1946 when Congress enacted the APA and it didn't itself create any new causes of action that went beyond existing law. Right so Maybe it helps to get into the actual language of the APA and the doctrine that it was thought to codify.
0: Yes. I should say I'm a victim of the conventional wisdom. So I had administrative law from Jerry Mashaw, who was terrific, but I definitely learned from him that the APA was itself a kind of revolutionary cause of action creating statute, sort of the equivalent of the rules of civil procedure or more in in civil procedure designed to just wipe away all this pre-existing law. So
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the understanding of data processing that has existed since at least the 1980s, right? So I think that's been the view for more than a generation. But maybe we should start by talking about stuff before the APA, right? What causes of action could be used against agencies or agency officials before Congress enacted the APA? Yeah, let's and I do think that. There were, there were two main categories of causes of action like that. Some causes of action that could be used against agency officials were non-statutory. They were the same causes of action that existed at common law or in equity against defendants who were committing a tort or interfering with the plaintiff's contractual relations or invading other kinds of legal rights belonging to the plaintiff. In the early 20th century, suits in equity were an especially common way of obtaining judicial review of agency action. If agency officials were doing something without valid authority, And if what they were doing violated personal legal rights belonging to the plaintiff, the plaintiff often could bring suit for an injunction against the responsible officials, just under general principles of equity. But under general principles of equity, that cause of action was available only to people whose own legal rights were being violated. Of course, even though a cause of action in equity just existed as a matter of unwritten law, the legal rights that the cause of action in equity might be used to protect, could be created by statute. And as time went by, the Supreme Court took an increasingly liberal view of the circumstances in which statutory limitations on an agency's power might create legal rights in favor of particular plaintiffs that they could then use suits in equity to protect. Writing in the 1960s, so this is after the APA was enacted, but writing in the 1960s about some prior doctrine. Professor Lewis Jaffe at Harvard argued that the key was the purpose behind the statutory limitation. If Congress had enacted a statutory provision to protect the interests of a discrete group of people, then that provision might be held to give each member of that group of people a personal legal right of the sort that would support a cause of action in equity to enjoin administrative officials from violating the provision. But that's one category of causes of action that could be used to. Seek judicial review of agency action, just the standard suit in equity. In addition to that generic cause of action supplied by unwritten law, some federal statutes about the powers of specific federal agencies created special causes of action, allowing people to obtain judicial review of certain agency decisions, even when they didn't have legal rights of their own at stake. And those provisions came to be known as special statutory review provisions. For instance, there's a famous one in the Communications Act of 1934, which said that whenever the FCC granted or refused an application for a radio station license, any person aggrieved or whose interests are adversely affected by that decision could appeal the FCC's decision to the D.C. Circuit, so could obtain judicial review.
0: And to think that through, the reason we'd need that is, suppose I'm a I'm a competitor, and they wrongfully grant my competitor a license. Under equity, I might not have, if I don't have an exclusive right of my own or something, I might not have equitable review because my own legal rights might not be violated by mistakenly letting somebody else use the airwaves.
1: Absolutely. So at this time, you know, in the 1930s, there's a series of Supreme Court decisions that are pretty hostile to competitor standing on the legal rights theory, right? The idea is you don't have a legal right to be protected against competition, even if your competitor is violating the law in some way, right? Unless the law has given you some kind of special personal legal right to be exempt from that sort of competition, you know, some kind of exclusivity like, like you're talking about of a sort that, that confers a legal right on you. But in general, you didn't have a legal right to be free from that sort of competition. And indeed, the case in which the Supreme Court interpreted the, um, the special statutory review provision in the Communications Act of 1934 was a competitor standing case. That's the Sanders brothers case from 1940. And the Supreme Court said in that case, yeah, a competitor is aggrieved or its interests are adversely affected by an allegedly unlawful decision to grant a radio station license to somebody else, right? So that, that The competitor is aggrieved by the potential loss of profits because it's now subject to competition that, that maybe it shouldn't have been. That's a decision that wouldn't have worked without the special statutory review provision because the plaintiff wouldn't have had legal rights to be free from competition. But Congress had expanded upon, at least according to the Supreme Court, Congress had expanded upon... Category of people who could sue to protest these kinds of decisions by the FCC. And that's what the court held in, in the Sanders Brothers case in 1940. And by the 1940s, there were a bunch of other federal statutes that also authorized certain decisions by specific federal agencies to be reviewed in court at the behest of people who were aggrieved or occasionally adversely affected, right? So there were a bunch of these special statutory review provisions with respect to specific decisions by specific agencies. They were interpreted in different ways. There wasn't really a one-size-fits-all interpretation of who counted as aggrieved that just could be applied across the board to all of these provisions. But there were some special statutory review provisions in favor of people who were aggrieved or, or adversely affected by specific agency decisions. That's the backdrop for the APA, which Congress enacted in 1946. And Section 10A of the APA addressed who has a right to judicial review of agency actions that are reviewable. Here's the original language of Section 10A as enacted in 1946. It said, quote, any person suffering legal wrong because of any agency action or adversely affected or aggrieved by such action within the meaning of any relevant statute, shall be entitled to judicial review thereof. Most scholars agree that that language wasn't meant to create any new causes of action. Instead, I think it simply tracked the two categories that already existed. So the language about people suffering legal wrong referred to people whose legal rights were being invaded and who therefore could benefit from the generic cause of action supplied by equity. That's the first prong of Section 10A. And the language about people adversely affected or aggrieved within the meaning of any relevant statute referred to people covered by special statutory review provisions contained in statutes other than the APA, like the Communications Act, right, the provision at issue in the Sanders Brothers case. In the 1950s, Professor Kenneth Culp Davis started promoting a different view of the second prong in Section 10A of the APA. He argued that the adversely affected or aggrieved language in Section 10A should itself be understood as a special statutory review provision along the lines that you were taught at Yale, so that everybody who's suffering injury, in fact, because of unlawful agency action would automatically have a cause of action under the APA. But I think that argument ignored the phrase within the meaning of any relevant statute, in yeah. Section 10A, right? It's not just people who are adversely affected by agency action. It's people who are adversely affected or, or or aggrieved within the meaning of any relevant statute. And that was taken at the time, I think, to refer to special statutory review provisions, like the one in the Communications Act of 1934.
0: Did Davis have a reading of that phrase, or did he just ignore it?
1: Based his argument partly on just his own view of what would be good, right? If you're harmed by illegal governmental action, he thought you should be able to go to court and get relief, even if you wouldn't have had legal rights at common law, right? You wouldn't. He just thought there should be broader rights of action to challenge unlawful governmental action. He also claimed to have some support from the legislative history, and particularly from one line in a committee report with respect to the APA in 1946. But I think most people weren't really persuaded by his arguments in the 1950s and 60s. I think the dominant view rejected his reading of the APA, as I think it should have. I think his view isn't all that persuasive to me and to a lot of other lawyers.
0: And one more thing about his view, though, just so if he's wrong, then is that whole sentence just kind of superfluous? Like, I mean, why include it in the APA a sentence just restating what was already the law?
1: So... There's some advantage in codifying existing doctrine, and you're also putting in a general framework for how this works in other respects, right? So there are provisions in the APA about how suit-seeking judicial review might work, right, which could apply whether you're talking about a suit under the Communications Act of 1934 or a suit under some other statute. So there might be a benefit in just kind of having in one place and subject to the same general procedural Requirements and and provisions about judicial review, a restatement of what the doctrine had been before. I think that's what Section 10A was intended to do, right? There had been broader proposals. In 1940, there had been a bill that ended up getting vetoed by the president, but that would have had much broader judicial review, but that didn't get enacted. So there was a fight in the 1940s that was part of opposition to the New Deal about how broadly are we going to have judicial review of agency action. I think the APA was not intended to make dramatic expansions of of who was entitled to judicial review. But after data processing, some lower court judges, including Antonin Scalia in the early 1980s when he was a judge <laughs> on the DC circuit, uh-huh. they thought that the Supreme Court had adopted Davis's interpretation of the APA, subject to this extra zone of interests limitation. So for a plaintiff to have a claim for relief Under the new cause of action that the Supreme Court allegedly had read into the APA, the plaintiff's interest had to be arguably within some relevant zone. But otherwise, it was Davis's test. The APA did create this, this massive new cause of action. In a footnote in 1986, the Supreme Court itself adopted that understanding of data processing. So I think that reading of data processing kind of originated in the lower courts, but the Supreme Court adopted that view. In 1986 and expanded upon it in 1987. So nowadays, data processing is understood as having greatly expanded the category of people who have remedial rights against agencies or agency officials that are behaving illegally. Anybody who's suffering injury, in fact, and who's even arguably within the zone of interests to be protected or regulated by the statute or constitutional provision that the agency is violating. Anybody who meets that test for standing has a cause of action, has remedial rights if the agency is indeed behaving unlawfully. Some of the same people who took that view of data processing, incidentally, thought the data processing was clearly wrong, right? That the APA didn't actually create that cause of action. That was Justice Scalia's view, for instance. I agree that as a matter of original meaning and legislative intent, the APA shouldn't have been understood to create any new, expansive causes of action like that. But I don't think the data processing itself actually did that. Based on the procedural posture of data processing, and based on some stuff in the opinion that we can talk about, I think its test for standing was simply meant as a preliminary screen, not the last word about a plaintiff's remedial rights. So I think data processing was more about procedural sequencing, than about the actual, does the plaintiff really have a cause of action?
0: Yeah, what's the best evidence that that's right?
1: Yeah, so let's look at what the data processing case was about and what Justice Douglas said in the opinion in data processing. So the data processing case involved a ruling by the comptroller of the currency who administers the National Bank Act. That act regulates what national banks can do, and it limits them mostly to the business of banking but it says that national banks can exercise all such incidental powers as shall be necessary to carry on the business of banking. In the 1960s, the comptroller of the currency started interpreting that language about incidental powers very broadly. Among other things, the comptroller issued a ruling saying that national banks may perform data processing services for their customers. That ruling potentially put national banks into competition with data processing companies to try to avoid that competition. So this is another competitor standing type case, a data processing company and its trade association, the Association of Data Processing Service Organizations, they filed suit in federal district court against the comptroller and also against a national bank that had started to provide data processing services and that allegedly had poached on a couple of the customers that that were Otherwise, might have dealt with the data processing company that was one of the plaintiffs. The plaintiffs wanted the court to set aside the comptroller's ruling on the ground that the comptroller had misinterpreted the relevant statutes, the National Bank Act and another statute called the Bank Service Corporation Act. The plaintiff said they don't really let national banks enter the data processing business. Early on, the defendants filed a motion to dismiss the complaint. The defendants cast that motion in terms of standing which they associated with the district court subject matter jurisdiction, so it was this threshold jurisdictional issue, do the plaintiffs have standing, or can the district court just dismiss their suit out of hand? The district court granted the motion to dismiss on the ground that even if the comptroller had misinterpreted federal law so that national banks couldn't really perform data processing services, the plaintiffs weren't pointing to any legal rights of their own that the comptroller's ruling invaded. On appeal, the Eighth Circuit agreed. The Eighth Circuit characterized the district court as having, quote, dismissed plaintiff's complaint for lack of jurisdictional standing, and the Eighth Circuit af- affirmed the district court had been correct to dismiss the plaintiff's case, but the Supreme Court reversed. According to Justice Douglas, the lower courts had been wrong to ask about the plaintiff's legal interest at this early stage of the case. In his words from the opinion and data processing, Quote, "The legal interest test goes to the merits. The question of standing is different with respect to standing. Justice Douglas focused on the two questions that I mentioned earlier rather than deciding whether the plaintiffs had a legal interest at this stage. Justice Douglas thought that the first question was just whether they had enough of a factual interest to serve as the foundation for a case or controversy in federal court. In his words, the plaintiffs needed to allege that they were suffering injury in fact because of what the defendants were doing. But the plaintiffs met that test here. The comptroller's ruling was exposing them to extra competition from national banks. That did lead to an injury in fact. According to Justice Douglas, the only other question relevant to standing was whether the interest that the plaintiffs were trying to protect, that is, their interest in avoiding competition from national banks whether that interest was, quote, arguably within the zone of interests to be protected or regulated by the statutes that allegedly made the comptroller's ruling illegal. That's the National Bank Act and the Bank Service Corporation Act. Justice Douglas thought that this loose zone of interest test was satisfied here, so he concluded that the lower courts had been wrong to dismiss the plaintiff's suit for lack of standing. But still, the fact that the plaintiffs had standing didn't automatically mean, even in Justice Douglas's view, that they would be entitled to a remedy if the comptroller's ruling did indeed conflict with the National Bank Act or the Bank Service Corporation Act. For Justice Douglas, that question of remedial rights, that is, whether the plaintiffs really had a cause of action, that was part of the merits, not part of standing. And in keeping with then-existing doctrine about who has a cause of action, Justice Douglas indicated that the answer to that question depended not only on whether the comptroller's ruling was unlawful, but also on whether the plaintiffs had a legal interest of the sort that would entitle them to relief. And he says that explicitly in the court's opinion in data processing. The second-to-last paragraph of the opinion, which spells out what should happen on remand, says, quote, "...whether anything in the Bank Service Corporation Act or the National Bank Act gives petitioners a legal interest that protects them against violations of those acts and whether the actions of respondents did in fact violate either of those acts are questions which go to the merits and remain to be decided below, right? So the questions on the merits were not simply, is the comptroller wrong about the statutes? Can national banks engage in data processing services or not? But do the plaintiffs have a legal interest that protects them against violations of those acts? The fact that Justice Douglas considered the legal interest test relevant to the merits of the plaintiff's claim for relief, but not as being part of the initial standing inquiry, is a clue to what his opinion in data processing meant by standing. I think he saw data processing's test for standing as simply being a loose preliminary screen that was designed to weed out plaintiffs who weren't even in the ballpark of having a cause of action. And that's why the test simply asked whether the plaintiff's asserted interest was arguably within some relevant zone, right? That's why it was so loose. If a particular plaintiff's interest weren't even arguably within the zone of interests to be protected or regulated by the statute or constitutional guarantee in question, then courts could tell right away that the plaintiff didn't have a cause of action, and the complaint could be dismissed without any further consideration, By contrast, courts would have to take a closer look at suits that were brought by plaintiffs whose interests were at least arguably in a relevant zone, right? You couldn't just dismiss those complaints out of hand. You'd have to think harder about whether they really have a claim for relief. That doesn't mean that those plaintiffs who met data processing's test for standing would definitely turn out to have a cause of action, but their claims couldn't just be dismissed out of hand. To me, that's the most likely explanation for the word arguably in Justice Douglas's opinion, which is otherwise really hard to understand. If you think Justice Douglas was trying to identify which plaintiffs have remedial rights under the APA, then the word arguably is bizarre, right? Why should a plaintiff be entitled to a remedy just because the plaintiff's interests are arguably within some relevant zone as opposed to actually being within that zone? But once you understand the data processing is just about procedural sequencing, And that Justice Douglas expected courts to decide upon remedial rights at a later stage of the case, right? We'll ask about legal interest when we get to the merits. Then the word arguably makes more sense. I mean, it still might be a strange decision, but at least it's not massively expanding the causes of action that previously existed in a way that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because of the word arguably.
0: Right. It still seems bizarre even under this understanding, though, because what... If it's right that standing and the cause of action are supposed to be, you know, very separate tests with standing being a jurisdictional question at the outset and the cause of action being a question about the merits, then what's the legal basis for adding this arguably cause of action screen to the standing test? Is this a cousin of the? Yeah.
1: So Douglas's test for standing, of course, had two components. The first one, the injury in fact thing, he definitely saw as jurisdictional. I'm not sure whether the arguably within the zone of interests thing whether he saw that as jurisdictional or simply as well we might as well if the plaintiff's interests aren't even arguably within the relevant zone then the plaintiff's suit can be dismissed for failure to state a claim without the need for any further inquiry. I'm not sure that he saw that as jurisdictional. He might have seen it as jurisdictional not in the constitutional sense but in a statutory sense, right? Some people after data processing analogized his opinion to the earlier statements in Bell against Hood, which yes. is a case saying if a plaintiff sues under what is allegedly a federal cause of action, even if that cause of action doesn't actually exist, the plaintiff is wrong on the merits, the plaintiff doesn't really have a claim for relief because there isn't any such cause of action, still the court probably has jurisdiction to, to reach the merits and decide whether the plaintiff has a cause of action. The only way that the court doesn't have jurisdiction is if the idea that there's a federal cause of action is just wholly insubstantial or frivolous, right? That's maybe the idea of Bell against Hood, that there could be some purported causes of action that so obviously don't exist, that they don't even provide a predicate for federal question jurisdiction under what is now 28 U.S.C. Section 1331. Yeah, Maybe there's an analogy between the arguably within the zone of interest test and Bell against Hood. Some courts after data processing did draw that analogy back when data processing was still being seen as kind of a preliminary screen. I'm not sure that's what Justice Douglas had in mind. I'm kind of skeptical, but that's possible that he that it's what he or his law clerk or somebody had in mind.
0: <laughs> Maybe it's at least why it didn't, how it got through the rest of the court without somebody lagging
1: it. Yeah, I think the justice who was paying the closest attention to what the court's doctrine on these areas, on on these matters should have been, was actually Justice Brennan, who didn't sign on to Justice Douglas's opinion. In a companion case called Barlow against Collins, he articulated a different framework that again saw standing as a total preliminary question. He wanted standing just to be about the constitutional question, basically the injury in fact question. He distinguished standing from what he called reviewability and also from the merits. But I think his framework was the most well thought out framework of any of the justices. It's not what it didn't acquire a majority of the court. But I think he was thinking about these issues a little harder than Justice Douglas or some of his colleagues at the time.
0: OK, so this all sounds incredibly clear once I hear you say it and once I look at the opinion, which then raises the question of, you know, How does a generation of people lose track of this? So
1: So part of it may just be, even on this, uh, your, your charitable view of this clear portrayal of data processing, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We don't really need this preliminary screen. I mean, there's other ways of deciding whether the plaintiffs, you can use other procedural mechanisms for getting rid of suits early on, right? Either a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim Right nowadays, that's a very common motion the yeah. twombly Iqbal kind of motion, or just a motion for summary judgment that again could say the plaintiffs don't really have a cause of action. You don't need this extra preliminary screen under the rubric of standing about whether the plaintiffs are arguably within some zone of interest. You could do that through other mechanisms, so you know Lee Albert, a law professor who actually was on the briefs in Barlow against Collins and I think, has written the best article about standing, particularly in administrative law. It's an article in the Yale Law Journal from 1974. He did see data processing as simply being a preliminary screen, right? So echoing his understanding of what data processing actually held. But he also said, we don't need it. We got other procedural mechanisms for dealing with this. And maybe just the unnecessary nature of of the data processing test helps contribute to the idea, well, it must be about something else, because that doesn't serve any purpose. Another potential reason for how people might get confused is just the word standing is itself so imprecise and is used for so many different purposes that it's open to a bunch of different interpretations, what anybody means when he or she says standing. And in the 1970s and 1980s, a lot of noted law professors, including Lee Albert and later including William Fletcher, clarified standing doctrine by pointing out its connections to causes of action. And people got used to thinking, oh, they're right, standing is just about whether you have a cause of action. And if you then retrofit that understanding onto data processing, you might think when Justice Douglas talks about standing, he's talking about whether you have a cause of action. Standing question and the question on the merits are very closely linked surely for example just as a matter of common law the analog to the common law an interest protected at common law the strictest standard this court has ever used in standing cases standing did exist when a person was a member of a class whose interests congress had sought to protect some earlier supreme court decisions had indeed used the word standing that way they had used you know, from the 1930s and 40s, a lot of the competitor standing cases are really about does the competitor have a cause of action? And the court talks in terms of standing when the court says, no, you don't have standing, you don't have a cause of action. I think Justice Douglas was using the word standing differently in data processing, but it's not as if he defined his terms or made his position particularly clear. So some confusion is, is understandable, I think.
0: I like the idea of retroactively reading Justice Douglas as if he anticipated, you know, Willie Fletcher. So it also makes sense, you know, if you're a lower court who who you know likes the Kenneth Culp Davis view of the world, you know, you can see how you could decide this is a convenient, you know, the opinion could be read to instantiate Davis's understanding. So so let's do it. It's you know more of a puzzle for somebody like Antonin Scalia who thought that was bad, and therefore you might have thought would not jump off that cliff unless he was really. Pushed, so if for him, is it? I mean, I was trying to think. Another possibility, I guess, is the sort of like assumption that it's an opinion by Justice Douglas, who's notoriously sort of activist and frequently creating broad judicial power over things. So they might have just assumed he was doing the kinds of things they associated Justice Douglas having done, and and not realized he was being more careful than usual.
1: Well, I wouldn't accuse him of being particularly careful in the data processing opinion. <laughs> and And Justice Douglas himself might have been perfectly happy with this misinterpret with what I see is the misinterpretation of data processing right very next year in the case called Investment Company Institute Against Camp, there's internal correspondence where Justice Harlan says, "Well, here's what we decided in data processing, and Harlan has the distinction between you know legal interest that's part of the merits and this preliminary inquiry in standing." And Justice Douglas says, "No, that's frivolous." I mean, there's this internal correspondence where he gives the back of the hand to what Justice Harlan, I think, is correctly saying about what data processing actually held. Uh-huh. So I think Justice Douglas was perfectly happy to go along with this broad understanding of his opinion. Maybe in 1970, he didn't necessarily think he could get the court to go along with it, but I don't think he was upset necessarily by this reading of his opinion. And of course. You know, the politics of judicial review of administrative action are kind of complicated, right? So at the time of the New Deal, conservatives wanted more judicial review of administrative action, and New Deal liberals didn't like judicial review of administrative action. But by the 1960s and 1970s, a lot of people want more judicial review of administrative action. That's not just a conservative position. There are also people concerned about agency capture or bureaucracy run amok. Justice Douglas himself had moved in that direction pretty hard, right? He started off as pretty committed to the administrative project, and by the nineteen fifties he was talking about the dangers of bureaucracy. So the idea of having expanded causes of action for judicial review of agency action might not fit neatly along political lines.
0: Yeah, and, and yeah, now I guess I don't even know what the political lines are are these days either. I think I think when I was in law school, it was conservatives who didn't like judicial review of agency action because that was executive power, and they liked that, right? But now I think Chevron is a dirty word among you know conservative types, suggesting they do they do like judicial review again. So, so right, I sure. think
1: there's a lot of shifting lines on on all of those issues. Of course, the plaintiff's complaint in data processing wasn't just you know seeking judicial review against the comptroller, right? There was also a particular data processing company that was suing a particular national bank for damages, right? Data Systems Incorporated was suing the American National Bank and Trust Company of St. Paul, Minnesota, for allegedly poaching two of its customers or something like that. And the lower courts had dismissed the whole complaint, not just the claims against the comptroller, but also the claims against the American National Bank and Trust Company. And that's the judgment that the Supreme Court reversed, right? So the Supreme Court is you know, reinstating the complaint. But when the Supreme Court says, the plaintiffs have standing it surely wasn't saying and there's definitely a good cause of action for damages against the american national bank and trust company if the plaintiffs are correct that the national bank act prevents national banks from providing data processing services right the court surely wasn't addressing you know the elements of that cause of action did the plaintiffs definitely have remedial rights against this particular national bank and i would say the same goes for the plaintiff's claims against the comptroller, right? The court's conclusion about what it called standing didn't mean that the plaintiffs definitely had a cause of action. I think you're right to think there's some mystery in exactly how data processing came to be seen that way. But I do think it's a misreading of the court's opinion. And I don't think the Supreme Court has ever deliberately decided that the APA confers exactly the same remedial rights on plaintiffs who are merely arguably within the zone of interest protected by a statute, as it confers upon people who are actually protected by the statute. Right, That's a strange holding. I don't think the Supreme Court has ever deliberately adopted that view. The Supreme Court, I think, didn't adopt that view in data processing itself. And in the 1980s, when the Supreme Court understood data processing to have done that, the Supreme Court didn't say, that's a good idea, the APA does confer that cause of action upon all of these people it just thought we'd already decided that in data processing and we won't revisit that question there's this precedent
0: yeah so i guess my this is amazing and really helpful and i guess my last sort of question or line of questions is a methodological question so it's you know so we have this precedent it's not the clearest although again i i think you're reading of it's very convincing but it's not the clearest People can read it in multiple ways. And you know its own author reads it in multiple ways. The Supreme Court reads it in multiple ways. So it seems like part of what you're doing here is trying to read a precedent in light of the right answer. <laughs> that, that is to, you know, precedent could be read to have done something very wrong by reference to preexisting law, or could be read not to have. We should read it as not having done that. Is that, is that right?
1: So maybe if you're uncertain about what the precedent holds, that's a decent you know, tiebreaker when you're trying to pick between two possible interpretations of the precedent. I think independent of one's views about whether the APA creates this cause of action or not, I think the reading of data processing that I'm putting forward is actually better than the alternative reading of data processing. I think the alternative reading of data processing doesn't adequately deal with the distinction that Justice Douglas drew between standing and the merits. It doesn't adequately deal with the fact that he explicitly says, you know, on remand, you should look into this legal interest business. Do the plaintiffs actually have a legal interest? Not just did the comptroller misinterpret the National Bank Act, but do these particular plaintiffs have a legal interest that entitles them to a remedy? Those are two separate questions, both of which are open on remand. So I think this interpretation of the opinion is actually better than the other interpretation of the opinion and also distorts the APA less. So I think, you know, there are perhaps independent reasons why you might like this interpretation of data processing. But I think it is, to my way of thinking, probably the best reading of the data processing opinion itself.
0: And do you think it's not too late to, you know, for the courts to bend back towards the right interpretation?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. And, you know, reasonable people can disagree about what the current Supreme Court should do with all this, you know, even if the court were to be persuaded that that I'm correct, which it probably won't be. But if I'm right, the court isn't currently adhering to what data processing actually held, right? Instead, it's adhering to what some later cases mistakenly assumed data processing had held. And, you know, that's a more complicated version of stare decisis, right? we're not actually adhering to data processing. We're adhering to these later cases that mistakenly assumed that data processing had held something that I don't think it actually held. Of course, those later cases themselves might be precedents, right, even if they're wrong. And I could imagine the court saying, you know, we've taken this view of data processing for 35 years. We're going to keep on taking that view, even if it's not what data processing itself actually said. But to my way of thinking... The cases that establish the court's current interpretation of data processing don't have some of the features that we ordinarily associate with strong precedent. They don't have some of the features that add to their weight under the doctrine of stare decisis. Under the doctrine of stare decisis that I would be tempted to apply, a deliberate decision by the Supreme Court would have more precedential weight than just casual assumptions that appear in Supreme Court opinions. And the opinion in which the Supreme Court first misinterpreted data processing was really quite casual. It just appears in a footnote in a 1986 opinion in a case called Japan Whaling Association, and it's not necessary to the decision that the court reaches in that case. So it's not necessary to the decision. It's just a footnote. I think it's wrong about what data processing held. And I don't think the court has ever made a deliberate decision about, you know, the underlying question that we're talking about, whether everybody who's arguably within some relevant zone should have exactly the same remedial rights as people who actually are in that zone, right? That's the underlying question. I don't think the Supreme Court has ever, you know, seriously said, we're going to think hard about that question. And the answer is yes, they should all have the same remedial rights. Arguably, actually, what's the difference? We want a really broad cause of action here instead of thinking about whether that makes sense the supreme court has just taken data processing to foreclose debate about whether it makes sense but if i'm right about what data processing said that's wrong right the court has never actually thought about the question that it takes its precedents to answer i mean basically you know if you think about what happened to the old legal interest or legal right test data processing turned out to be kind of a shell game right so The legal interest test starts off under the rubric of standing. Data processing says, no, it should be part of the merits. So we're going to move the legal interest test over to the merits. But then lower courts, just at least some lower courts, have it go away entirely, right? In the process of being moved from standing to the merits, it just vanished. And the Supreme Court ultimately goes along with that. So that doesn't seem to me to be... I mean, I think basically that's kind of an accidental misreading of data processing may be informed by the kinds of policy, you know, normative considerations that you were suggesting earlier. Some people might like Kenneth Gulp Davis's view of the APA and might, for one reason or another, therefore be inclined to adopt this interpretation of data processing. Maybe it just makes more sense to them than it does to me, or or maybe preconceptions about how broad the cause of action under the APA should be influence subconsciously how broadly they read data processing right but it's basically act the doctrine that we currently have i think is basically accidental in the sense that the supreme court never deliberately decided this makes sense and i don't think it's right as a matter of you know what the apa was originally understood to mean what it was intended to mean just as a matter of original meaning and legislative intent i don't think that the apa actually created this broad cause of action And even Kenneth Culp Davis didn't like data processing to the extent that it had this zone of interest test, right? (laughs) I mean, he thought anybody who's injured in fact by unlawful governmental action should have remedial rights. And you can understand, just as a normative matter, why somebody might think that, right? That has some appeal. It's gonna lead to a lot of suits against administrative agencies, but you might think that's okay. The arguably within the zone of interest test is kind of a random limitation on that cause of action, right? You could have Kenneth Culp Davis's view, or you could have the view of pre-existing law where you needed a legal right or a special statutory review provision. But it seems highly unlikely to me that just as a normative matter, the best policy compromise is the arguably within the zone of interest test. Right, this preliminary screen turns out to be the best way of allocating remedial rights under the APA. That just seems unlikely to me.
0: No, I take the point. I take the point. The most alarming thing is that if this uh does prove to persuade the court, which maybe it should, I may have to take administrative law all over again. Like a lot of things, maybe a lot of elements of administrative law I accidentally believe in reliance on this conventional wisdom.
1: Well, I think there has been a general tendency with respect to standing doctrine in general to sort of associate injury, in fact, with causes of action. And I think the court is pressing back against that in a helpful way in some respects, right? You think of the Lexmark case and think of some other cases where maybe the court is saying, it's not enough simply to have a real world harm. You also have to have a cause of action. You need some remedial rights. So, you know, I think there was a time when courts basically thought, well, injury, in fact, means you get into court rather than injury, in fact, means you could have a cause of action that enables you to get into court if somebody gives you one, either the common law or equity gives you one, or Congress or a state legislature gives you one. There was a time when people kind of lost sight of the need for a cause of action. I do think the work of scholars like Lee Albert and Willie Fletcher helped focus people's attention on, you know, causes of action are important. Henry Monaghan, has continued that point. Others have. So I think it's conceivable that the renewed attention on causes of action might lead to some re- rethinking of what did data processing actually hold and what is the scope of the cause of action that the APA creates?
0: Yeah. When I teach the separation of standing and causes of action, which I spend many, many days repeating in federal courts, you know, then somebody always says, well, what about an administrative law? And until Until a few years ago I'd say, ah, the trade of law is weird. I don't know what they're doing over there. (laughs) But now I think I understand where
1: they're Well, as a formal matter, they just say the APA creates this really broad cause of action, right? So they don't necessarily lose sight of the need for a cause of action. They just take the APA as interpreted by data processing to have supplied a really broad cause of action.
0: Right. But maybe maybe wrongly. Okay, this is wonderful. This is just an amazingly lucid and I think mind-blowing rereading of, of this area of law, but we should probably call the end of the episode here.
1: Well, wonderful. Thank you for having me, Will, and I'm honored to have been on, and Thank I you will again. see you
0: soon. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Caleb, for joining us today. For updates on future episodes, follow us on Twitter at UChicagoConLaw, and make sure to subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. If you need more current SCOTUS talk, check out Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable podcast hosted by me and Dan Epps.